I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Rosamund Lupton on her latest novel, Three Hours. Rosamund Lupton is the author of Sister, a BBC Radio 4 book at bedtime, a Sunday Times and New York Times bestseller, winner of the Strand Magazine Critics Award and the Richard and Judy Book Club Reader's Choice Award. Her next two novels, Afterwards and The Quality of Silence, which was also a Richard and Judy pick, were Sunday Times bestsellers. Her books have been published in over 30 languages and Rosamund's latest novel, Three Hours, we're going to be talking about today. Rosamund, welcome to Little Atoms. It's lovely to be here. Can you describe, how would you describe the novel, first of all? I think it's very difficult. I think it's, um, it doesn't really fit into one genre very easily. Mm-hmm. So I know that at the moment it's just been published, it's been squeezed into the thriller genre, but with sort of caveats. So yes, there's a thriller element. It's over three hours, someone is shot at the beginning in a school, it goes into lockdown, what happens for three hours? So there's an obvious engine driving it. But I hope alongside that to have done different explorations of things that interest me and there are other stories taking place. I want to talk about that three hours element first of all. It is, does literally what it says on the cover, three yes. hours. And it, yeah, there's there's no messing about. It starts yeah. off with the shooting. It does, yeah. And, and ob- there's a little bit of it that's in flashback and obviously the book does digressions about about the characters. But fundamentally, you have set yourself this three-hour time period. And, and I wanted to talk about any restrictions of that. I think, in a way, it's quite liberating in that I needed some kind of structure. It's told by many different points of view, which I really wanted. And I think in order for that to be cohesive, you need something to keep it all together. And I found this time frame quite a useful way of making keeping me on track, really. Otherwise, it could have been all over the place. So it was a structure, and it kind of gave it cohesion. And I was also just interested in exploring time. So there's the kids and teachers in the school and they're trapped and, and time goes very, very slowly for them. When I was writing it, it felt very slow. You know, if there's a gunman on the other side of the, of the door, it feels like a minute takes forever. Whereas other people experiencing time very differently, certainly the police who we also follow who have to try and get everybody out. Um, time's going really fast and I have the image of a sand, of sort of hourglass with sand going through rather than a sort of more modern sense of time where you almost see the time that's wasted. 
So when I was writing, it had these two kind of different times going on. And someone once said to me, if you wear an analogue watch, you see time differently than a digital watch. So if you see time going round and round, you have a sense of time repeating. And if you don't, you don't get that sense. So there's a kind of subtle exploration, I hope, of that as well. And you've chosen to set it in a blizzard, which, I mean, there are sort of plot elements to that, but also it gives that feeling of stillness. The the feeling of stillness and aloneness. You know, when there's a blizzard and there's a young boy and he's a teenager and he's on his own and he's lost, he's so alone because he can't see where he is, he can't find his brother. Um, So I like that sense of isolation, alienation that you get with the blizzard. And visually... how. Everything changes. You know, all the familiar landmarks are covered. Nothing is, is signposting you in the normal way. And it's very disorientating. And the kind of physicality of being very cold. And I think in the book, I, I look a lot at how people are feeling physically. It's, it's quite an important part of it. And being very cold is one of those physical experiences that happen during the book. There's a, a, a boy in a, a shed and he's trying to pull his you know, sleeves down over his hands, which are really cold and they won't reach. And it's those sort of small details like that that you feel for him the cold and the dark are as much adversary as, say, this gunman that might be out there somewhere. So the story, I mean, as you said at the beginning, it does, it does flit across genres, but fundamentally it is, it is thrilling, I think... if not strictly a thriller. So I, what I was going to say was that, you know, obviously we're not going to talk too much about what happens because we don't want to give the story away because there are surprises as it goes. But, you know, fundamentally, as you've, as you've said, it's basically about a school shooting, a siege well, at a school. It is and it isn't. I mean, I think there's a very useful engine, that thriller engine, to, to drive a story. And I think then within that, you can look at all sorts of other things. I was very interested in exploring the experience of two young refugees from Syria who are part of this um, siege. And, and we look at their backstory and how they've got to this place. And, you know, the older ones brought a copy of Macbeth from Aleppo with him. And there are kind of parallels to what's happening at the school and in Macbeth and how his father saw um, Syria as being like Macbeth, Scotland. So there's all sorts of other things going on, which in a way having this very strong engine of three hours school siege means that I can then explore um, things that also very interested me before I started writing the book. And, and that was one of them. And I was interested in the politics. Um, I was interested in the world that we live in with Trump and how hate speech seems to be getting ever worse and the repercussions of that without wanting to write it in a lectury kind of way, but showing that through story as to what might happen. We'll look at some of the main characters, a huge cast of characters, but um, a few of the main ones in a moment. And we'll come back to Macbeth later on. But let's talk about the school, first of all. So map out the school for us. So, So the school is on the coast in Somerset and partly I chose that because it was very important to me that it was coastal, there's kids that shelter on the beach under the cliffs and I also wanted woodland and Somerset has woodland going right down to the sea so I liked the geography of where I was setting it and this is a school that happened over time, it was founded in the 20s, it's a progressive school so it started off with a small building and other buildings have been added and built so it's kind of dotted through a large woodland so there's a sense of people being isolated from one another and the woods not sure what's going on, who's lost in there, if there's another terrorist in the woods. So that that was a kind of geographical uh, makeup, if you like, of, of the book. You've said it's a progressive school. Tell us about the school's ethos. So the school's ethos is actually based on, on a school that my kids go to and was founded in the 20s, and it's this idea that there is no uniform, um, there's no prize givings, there's no prefects. It goes from three years old through to 18, and it's very small. And in fact, in the book, they use surnames, but in, in the school it's based on the teachers don't have, aren't used by the surnames, they're used by their first names only. So it's a very particular kind of school, and, and it has a history of taking in refugees. So it took in refugees during the Nazis. They sheltered Jewish children from Poland 
took them into the school. They took children from Sarajevo. So it's, it's a, a certain type, if you like. And I'm sure it's replicated across the UK, but it's one that I knew, knew about quite well. So I was writing about a school that I, I knew. And also, I wanted that range of ages. So it goes from very young, three to six formers. So let's talk about some of the, the main characters. The book is a third-person narration, but it's told from the perspective of various different characters in various different positions relating to the siege yes. that, that's going on. So first of all, Matthew Marr, who's the headmaster, who is the character that gets, he's not giving anything away to say, he gets shot. He gets shot in the opening Right at off. the very beginning, yeah. yeah. Um, so tell us something about him. Who is he? So he's a, um, he's a headmaster who... I think is at the point that he's shot, he has been wondering what he's done with his life a bit, that he's given everything to the school. He hasn't got kids of his own and he's, he kind of loves them all equally, but certainly he's got his favourites, if you like, which is young deputy head and the two boys from Syria who he met when he went to Dunkirk um, to the refugee camp there. So he's a very compassionate man. Um, he's quite, I think, quite an inspiring man. And he definitely is the sort of captain of the ship. And when he's shot, it's really what the others have all learnt from this headmaster, if you like. So the teenagers looking after him in the library, very conscious that this man that's led them is now probably dying and how they deal with that. And I think he's very proud of them. He's not able to speak, but he can. He has a sense of what's going on. And he also has this tremendous guilt because he knows the reason for this and he realises that it's something he played a part in. And the tremendous guilt of that, I think, affects him horribly through through this siege. Yeah, and I love the way that you've you've written his character in that he is, you know, fundamentally a dying man yes. and you know he's coming in and out of consciousness and imagining the past and the present at the same time often and the descriptions of his sort of thought processes are, are, are brilliant I yes. thought. Well I, I really wanted this idea that your consciousness is something that you, well, you, you do take it for granted when you can't quite get it when you feel like you're an island in a sea and the sea's lapping at the shores and you're losing consciousness and you mustn't you have to keep awake. And I kind of wanted to write about brain injury in a way that was very immediate for the reader, so they're almost sharing that thought process with their head teacher as he goes through it. So, yeah, he was... I cut a lot of him. Um, it's a very pared-down version of what you've got, because to start with, I thought it would be his story. So there was a lot, and then I've, I've kind of trimmed it down so it's, it's a kind of salient point now. Tell me more about how that developed then. I was going to ask you about this idea later about using, you know, choosing to use the multiple characters yeah, and when you settled on that. No, I didn't, I didn't set out to do that. I, I set out not knowing whose story to tell and I tried various people, so the headmaster, who I liked but wasn't quite sure, and then the mother of a, of a teenager who's missing and then the Syrian refugee boy and a teenage girl and, and a, a drama teacher. And I loved all of them. In fact, there were more, but I couldn't pick. And then I started looking at what would happen if I intercut the different voices, if you like. As you say, it's not from in their voice, but it's very much from just over their shoulder. And realised that that was actually quite a good way for me, a challenging way, but a way that I could tell a more complete story. So it's th this one event over three hours, which is told by various people and, and outside of the school. So parents waiting and a police officer who's a psychologist trying to find out what's going on in the government's heads. And I quite like the idea that all these perspectives would somehow form a, a complete story or as complete as I could make it. Yeah, and it gives a more rounded perspective on the characters as well. So Hannah, who is the next character yeah. I wanted to talk about, the teenage girl, she... The, t the story is told from her perspective at some point, yes. but then there's also points where there's another boy that's hostage with her, Frank, who is yes. basically, you know, we see Hannah through his eyes yes. as well. And he, he kind of popped up, actually. I wasn't expecting Frank, and he's he's in love with Hannah in a very sort of platonic way. He kind of adores her. 
And so you see her through his eyes and how brave she is and therefore how cowardly he feels. And then he tries very hard not to impress her, but to be the kind of young man that he should be in her eyes. So Hannah is really important. I mean, she looks after the head teacher. Um, She's got a single parent dad. And one of the things that happens is you're inside her head a lot of the time. And it's her dad's voice talking to her. And she kind of realises as this progresses that they haven't really grown apart at all. That even though she's now 16, 17 years old, her dad's still just as important when it counts. And I, she's got a kind of joie de vivre that despite all the horror that's going on around her, she has this kind of, I don't know, amazing energy and resilience and, and courage in a kind of really unusual way. I don't think she'd describe herself as courageous. And one of the things I like, she's, she's in love with this boy called Rafi, who's a, who's a refugee, and, she, and they're an item, but she doesn't think he loves her back. And as it transpires, he feels the same way. And there's this amazing moment where she realises, and despite everything, a gunman literally pushing at the door, she has this euphoric joy that this boy loves her too. And I wanted that relationship to be as real and as important as any adult relationship in the way I wrote it. I want to talk about, before we come on to Rafi and, and Bazzi, which we'll do in a moment, another one of the characters, so going away from the school, yeah. uh, Beth Alton, who yeah. is another one of you've just alluded to the fact that you, you, know, you wondered about telling the story from her perspective. So she's the mother of a boy, Jamie, at the school, yes. who is missing throughout most of the book yeah. and also she hears the, she hears his, his yeah, voice in I mean, her head I was yeah. trying to work out how to do it and I thought well, the only way that you can really for me get across the relationship close relationship between mother and a teenage boy is to have chats between them inconsequential chats and through that you get his voice and her voice and the kind of love between them I think is much clearer than her describing it so they do she remembers conversations or she almost makes them up she knows what he'd say to her in this situation he teases her which I think that's something the teenage boys do to their mums quite a lot but in a very affectionate way um, so I wanted him although he's lost and missing I wanted him to be a very immediate presence in the book so yeah, and I think the the kind of normality of their day just suddenly turning on its head is highlighted against the sort of normal conversations and this terrible thing that's happening. So she's Beth's um, away from the school at a, a leisure centre yeah. at Minehead a few miles away, which is the place where all the parents of, and then eventually the sort of survivors are, are sort of gathering. And so we get to see, you know, the parents interacting with each other in, in this sort of terrible situation which is almost to me reflects, you know, you see the kids at school and, and how they behave to each other. Yeah. And then we see the parents reacting to each other and there's this sort of, you know, they're, they're sort of changing in attitudes they between are. them as, as certain parents' children suddenly, you know, they realise that their children are safe. I know, and, and, and the kind of um, fury that you can feel that someone mm. can be sending a smiley emoji because their child's safe and yours isn't yet, I think. Um, there's also the sense that they are very separate this terror makes some of them very separate from each other and then gradually they start to talk to each other and sometimes very ugly things come out so I, I talk a lot about well, show hopefully courage in, in a lot of the people but in, in the, some of the parents their prejudices and their, their terror means that they are talking about who's done this and saying things that they would never have said if they weren't in this particular situation and there's a father that really regrets sending his child to this liberal school that, they, that somehow the school is by being liberal has brought this on themselves there are people who blame the refugee children, they're Muslims, they brought this terror into the school. And, and it's very ugly. And, and there's a sort of moment where, where Beth, the mother, kind of is shocked by it. And Hannah's dad, actually, they're sitting at the same table as it transpires. Um, and he tries to intervene and stop it because he knows Rafi. It's a lovely touch that Hannah's dad is there in his pyjamas. I know, yes, exactly, <laughs> just jumping in the car. Yeah. And Beth's slightly awkward about being close to a man in pyjamas to start with, even those little taboos somehow continuing despite the horror. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Rosamund Lupton and we're talking about her latest novel, Three Hours. And Rosamund, I want to bring us back to then Rafi and Barsi. The, the two, you could tell us about their, something about their journey from Aleppo, basically, but these are two Syrian refugees who have been taken, welcomed into the school by most people. That's right. I think they've been welcomed by the community. And uh, Rafi's 16, he's in love with his girlfriend. Um, and she doesn't know that yet. He's in a school play and he's brought his dad's copy of Macbeth from Syria and now it's being performed and he has a part. And um, one of the things that transpires is he's he's very literate, he's very intelligent, he's very kind. Um, you know, he's he, yes, he's a refugee and we, we find out about his story and that he has PTSD, but he's also a lot of things in the present tense as well that was important to me when I was writing him. So he's uh, to start with, he sees himself as Fleance in Macbeth, you know, the boy who runs away. And because he's left his mother and he feels tremendously guilty about that, there wasn't enough money for the people smugglers to pay for her as well. So it was just him and his brother. Um, he was 14 and his brother was six when they made the journey. And you see it in snapshots, just a few images um, which highlight for him the kind of dangers of that journey 
And now it's all happening again for him as he has to keep his brother safe. And Bazzi's a little boy who, you know, re- read Syrian folk tales and still does, but is also reading Wind in the Willows and Where the Wild Things Are. So they're both kind of half immersed in English culture and also Syrian culture. And Rafi says at one point, people don't want to hear the story and I don't blame them. You know, it's all that tugging misery. It's, you know, I want to go and play Spotify or play Xbox games or binge watch Netflix. So I didn't want them to be like, oh, here comes the very worthy Syrian refugee characters. I wanted them to be very much kind of alive and and interesting for themselves as personalities. And as you mentioned, you know, they've been welcomed into the community and this school, which prides itself on its liberal values. And then we start to see the parents, you know, some of them are obviously, you know, Staunch liberals who are also yes. sort of slightly smugly proud about exactly. the sort of tradition of this school, smug, and it yeah. yeah, and it starts to crack when it, it becomes apparent that perhaps there's a terrorism element involved. Exactly. Yeah, and, and I think that fear for your own child makes you incredibly selfish, and I think all parents know that that huge selfishness that comes with having a child, which is terrible. And I think they experience it um, in a certain way in that sports centre cafeteria where they're blaming two children, effectively. And they catch themselves and they know it's wrong, uh, but it's, it's a moment where they, some of them will see themselves for the first time, just that they're not the very liberal people that they thought they were at the beginning. And what I thought was particularly brilliant was, and we won't necessarily talk about why this happens, but there's reason for basically real headlines from newspapers yeah. and, you know, real people Absolutely, who have... You know, I- you know, fomented hate against against Muslims to be bought into this story. I, I really wanted to to use... I mean, I, I remember seeing some headlines and seeing them all together. I have a local co-op, and, and uh, you know, outside the front of the headlines. And it's day after day it becomes shocking, um, the drip, drip, drip of Islamophobic headlines. And I researched some of them, and most of them are untrue. You know, Muslims ban Christmas, and it meant the council was calling Christmas lights winter lights. I mean, it was something as stupid as that, and that became the headline. And that that kind of drip feed of hatred and fear was something I wanted to explore um, in terms of the consequences of that endorsement of hate, really, um, and seeing people as different and traitors or dangerous and how that might play out. And especially I thought that linked with Trump and how he disseminates Britain First, tweets, retweets their tweets, it's 40 million followers he's got. And I think it's a very real danger that our national press, or not all of them, but quite a few, do promulgate um, something very close to far-right ideology. And when, I mean, after I wrote the book, there was the terrible massacre in New Zealand and the murderer filmed it. And one of our papers actually put that footage up on their newspaper's site. Um, one of them published his manifesto. You know, it, there's a thin line and... I felt that was something, I think it's been explored a lot more recently, but when I was writing the book it was something that I didn't think had been talked about much or shown maybe in a story terms of what might happen to young people as a consequence. I think also this, you know, you, I mentioned in the blurb that, you know, your novels have been, you know, Richard and Judy book choices. Yeah. They're obviously like popular sort of novels in that sort of in yeah. that sort of way. So there's going to be people that read this novel, that pick this book up in the Tesco's or something yeah. and read this novel, that also pick up the Daily Express? I hope so. That's sort of the part of the point. I mean, I think I've told you what I was writing about, which wasn't necessarily, you know, terror attack on school. But if that's the engine that gets them reading, you know, maybe a more subtle or more nuanced view, or to point things out that maybe haven't been pointed out because we're all in our echo chambers and I'm in one and they're in another, and to kind of try and find a way to bridge that... 
um, was something I, I wanted to do without, without it being kind of causal. It's something I felt was important that this wasn't written just for people that think like me and go, oh, well, obviously that's terrible. Maybe it's someone that hasn't thought about it or, you know, you read the headlines about migrants or you read the comment section of papers and it's like they're lesser, like these boys are not like our children. Cockroaches. Um, cockroaches, yeah. Um, let, you know, burn the boats. You know, see, show me the drowning bodies. I still don't care. Quote unquote. You know, it's 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 extraordinary that that we have that. The last character I wanted to look at was um, Rose Polstein, who's yeah. a sort of detective inspector and and a sort of criminal psychologist, through whose eyes we see you know the police coordination yeah. and and the sort of like anti terrorism efforts and. I guess I want to, rather than look at who she is, let's talk about how you researched, you know, how the police would respond to a real-life school shooting. I, I was very lucky. I have a police advisor, and so I asked him what would happen. So there's gold, silver and bronze layers of command, and I wanted to get that right. Um, and I, I find it quite interesting that they're away from the school. They're in their kind of porter cabins, their command and control centre, and they've got screens and bottled water, and the school is snowing and it's freezing and people are hiding in the dark, and the, the difference between that. And Rose Polstein is so aware of that, and she really wants to be in the school, even though she can't do anything. And I found that that kind of, not exactly disconnect, but they need that removed to do their job. And yet at the same time, it feels quite alien, I think, for them as people wanting to actually go in and physically do something to help the kids. I think for her, what I was interested in her character is that she's not a police psychologist who's that interested in criminal mm. minds. You know, this is not, oh, look, the psychopath, how fascinating. What interests her are the people, ordinary people, who do extraordinary things. And the kids in the school or the helicopter pilot um, who's flying in a blizzard, those are the people that matter to her. And she says that she does this job because those people matter to her. And I was actually quite interested recently, I've just been reading The Five, you know, the untold stories mm -hmm. of Jack the Ripper's victims and uh, Know My Name by Chanel Miller, um, who's a rape victim. Who, And it, it seems to me that there is now a much more interest in, it's not that they're just victims, but telling the story from people's point of view who happen to find themselves victims of these terrible things and that they are centre stage and have a voice. And so Rose Polstein's job, if you like, is is to also not blame, say, the parents or to not cast blame and to not kind of glamorise what these terrorists or these gunmen are actually doing. And I thought that was quite important, even though I think it's quite interesting what she finds out and how she pursues her job. It's not the focus of the novel. What about, let's talk about school shootings more generally then in yeah. terms of researching those. And there's one thing that you talk about in here, which is this term that's often come to be associated with these with these type of shootings, which is the dyad, where there's... Yeah. there's well, you can tell us what that means. Well, it's, it's when a pair come together with toxic consequences. So in Columbine, there was a sort of depressive, and as far as we can tell, a psychopath. So the suicidal depressive um, who basically wanted to kill himself by murdering other people and then being shot by the police, which apparently, weirdly, is very common in, in the States. It's death by cop. And very much groomed by this more powerful, more kind of cold, it seems, although his parents don't give interviews or anything, that he was more psychopathic. And that combination came together. And I was interested, we talked about Macbeth a little while ago, I was interested in how that toxic combination that you feel that Macbeth or that Lady Macbeth wouldn't have started on that course. So in the book, the kids in the theatre, which is a safe place relatively, rehearsed Macbeth and through watching Macbeth and Lady Macbeth and how a dyad is created, if you like, this murderous pair, start to understand what's happening in their school. And then, of course, there's the witches and who they are, which is, 
you know, another interesting thing for me was was if you look at this Columbine, then they were trying to find out, well, was it music, you know, or was it games? And you think, well, no, it can't have been because otherwise there would be kids doing this up and down the country. But there must have been something else. And people think there has to be something else. And I think in Macbeth, in Shakespeare, went, well, there's the witches. And I think in, in my book, it's the dark nets where the sort of modern witches meet. Uh, and I explore that. Yeah, so I was going to say, um, we've talked about sort of the, the police's reaction and you know you've just mentioned you talk about the um you know the dark net and this mm. is as it turns out where the shooters are coordinating yeah. where they're getting their weapons from i wanted to talk about the school's plan so the school also has yeah. terrifyingly schools well, have you know very do. detailed even here where you know this is not it's not an everyday occurrence yeah. as it is in america but, you know, the idea that the school has a plan to deal with this sort of shooting. They do. I mean, I think schools will have lockdown procedures now, which is just horrifying. Um, and, and sirens. I certainly know that I live opposite my kids' school and the sound of the lockdown siren is different from the fire alarm and it's a horrifying sound. So, yes, I think it is a re- reality. That said, you know, in the States you can get a gun so easily. I mean, I've been there and they're literally lined up like in the supermarket. It's extraordinary. And here it's not like that. You know, a disaffected kid cannot just go and get a gun or get someone to buy him a gun. So it is very different and therefore much less likely. I think that this is a what-if scenario and it's exploring all sorts of things. It's not saying, I think this is going to happen. To finish off, can I get you to, to read us a bit? Of yes, the book? I shall read. I'll read it. We've, we've spoken about Hannah, um, so I thought I'd read a bit about Hannah. So this is uh, midway through the book. Uh, Mr Marr is her teacher and he's badly wounded and there's a gunman in the corridor. In the library, the shutter is banging and banging as the wind outside builds. Mr. Marr has lost consciousness again. Hannah is checking his pulse, which is getting harder to feel. Everyone is quiet, listening to the shutter and the footsteps, which are coming back towards them. Click, click. Does he know that his footsteps are like time beating? The footsteps stop outside their door. If this is how she's going to die, if, still a great big if, then it's nothing like she'd imagined. Not that she'd imagined it often. She's not maudlin that way. When she did, she'd imagined long, dusty roads when Ice Age come early, civilization gone, her and a band of fellow survivors toughing it out as long as they can with a few books and a flute, not the school library on a normal day. The footsteps haven't moved away. He's still outside. Keep thinking about dystopian novels. Frankly, it's a bit embarrassing that the only way you could imagine your own death was to have the entire planet dying as well. The door creaks. He's pushing it. She wants to speak to Rafi tries to believe it's really good that she can't because his last impression of her would be that she's not at all brave. And that might be stupid, but it's all he'll have to go on about her. And she wants him to remember them running through the woods this morning, even though she was wheezing like an old geezer in a tartan dressing gown, because they were happy and she was unafraid. A book falls from the pile as he pushes against the door. The pile is budging. He must be putting his whole weight against it. Good that she can't speak to Dad too, because she'd break down and that would be awful for him, awful for her. She was quite calm on TV with lip-glossy Melanie, speaking normally, smiling even. He'll think that's how she feels. Hopefully he'll think that. There's a gap now. He's opened the door a tiny way. Ed goes to the door and sits down with his back pressed to the books, using his body to shore up the barricade. Frank joins him, pushing back, and the door doesn't open any further. A minute later, the footsteps walk away. So I've been talking to Rosamond Lupton. We've been talking about her latest novel, Three Hours, which is out in the UK now from Viking. Rosamond, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Thank you.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.